Well, good morning again. Do we have the catechism slide by chance? Sweet! Because we did not get to do... I know the games are super close now, so I want to make sure that I get you guys this week's catechism so you can practice, so we can see some shuffling of the teams. So I will go ahead and I will ask you guys the questions, and you guys can just simply read it. Our question today is, how can we glorify God? Perfect. I'll give you a little cheat. It's three, then three. There you go, when you're memorizing it. Three things, then three things. So we are doing the the New City Catechism uh, ultimately because even when we are singing here, uh, we are proclaiming truths that we believe as a a body. That's that's what makes coming to church better than uh, doing church on your own because we're a community. We're doing this together. There's something about corporate worship proclaiming the same things. And so that's actually uh, kind of the heart behind why we're doing the catechism. Uh, But there you go. That's this week's. And one more shameless plug before we actually get into the business of church. You can still get points today. So you can alter the standings by the end of the day. Okay? You guys with me? Okay, sweet. Good. All right, guys, so we are going to go ahead and we are going to be in the book of Nahum or Nahum, depending on who says it. Uh, some people say Nahum, some say Nahum. I like hum. I don't know why, but I do. Uh, so that's what I will be saying. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, uh, pull those out. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, I wrote it down. It's going to be page 782. Uh, and as you're turning there, I'm going to give a... Uh... No, I'm not. This book, there's an uh, underlying uh, theme, and that underlying theme is wrath. So I will not be preaching a very joyous um, sermon this morning but what I uh, just want to put out there is you're going to see God's grace, God's mercy, God's uh, love in what I would call the buts. It's those God is all of this, but he is also this. God is going to do all of this, but he's going uh, to do this as well. So as we read this, that will be what we're doing. But if you guys will stand, I love to do an Old and New Testament reading. So if you guys would stand for the reading of God's word, I want to read out of Nahum Chapter 1, verse 15, and then I will read out of Revelation uh, 21, 1 through 4. And it says, Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, and never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And then Revelation 21, 1 and 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned to her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He dwelt with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things had passed away. And the, the Bible says, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. You guys go ahead and have a seat. So that is our theme, is within uh, Nahum's timeline. So he is going to be talking to a nation uh, named Nineveh. So we can see on our timeline here, he's right there about 650, 612 B.C., which puts him about 100 years from Jonah. 
So if you guys can remember, that was our first story was Jonah. Jonah preached the gospel of seven words, and this massive city of Nineveh repented. Jonah did not go in there thinking he was going to get Nineveh to repent. He was going there hoping that what we're going to read about today was going to happen. He was hoping that God was going to come and destroy Nineveh. And the reason is Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the nation of Assyria. Now, Assyria was known for being incredibly brutal to their enemies. So when the Assyrian army would come and conquer, or when the Assyrian army would come and go to battle, they were ruthless. Ruthless. They were awful, awful people. And the city of Nineveh had itself set up between rivers, and they had actually created dams and basically built. There was one side of Nineveh that was sort of penetrable. So they had created this city so they would go out, conquer all of these people, and then go back to this place that they knew nobody could touch them. Nobody was going to go through these rivers. Nobody was going to try and attack and cross their walls because their army was there. They were already brutal. So they lived this life just assuming they, nobody, they were untouchable. That's honestly why it was so profound when Jonah comes and Jonah says, the Lord's going to destroy you, and they responded the way they did. Because at this point, Nineveh is untouchable. Well, we, we fast forward a hundred years, right? We... We've looked at Amos, as Amos was calling out against the, the city, of, or the, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, because we could see it split it in 920, and we see Amos calling out against them, then we see Hosea calling out against Israel, and then Israel is defeated by none other than Assyria. So Assyria comes in and lays waste to the northern kingdom, and then last week, Pastor Jeff walked us through the book of Micah, and the underlining thing in Micah is now the, the northern kingdom has been destroyed, so now we just have the southern kingdom of the two, the two tribes, and he's going over there, and, and Micah's calling out and saying, your leaders are leading you falsely, right? The, your leaders are leading you to this false worship. Your leaders are abusing you, and there's a call first against the leadership, right? Get in the line. Do what you're supposed to do, and then it turns to the people, and he says, but you're, you're not, you don't get to play not it. You don't get to play not it. If you're following bad leaders, you're going to do bad things. The key in all that is these leaders were leading people to sin, and they enjoyed it. And so it was really easy to go, well, hey, man, the priest said it. I'm just doing what the priest said. The priest said it was okay. So Micah was last week, and then here we come, and we're going to step back out of Judah. Now, now Nahum is going to be writing about um, Nineveh. He's not necessarily writing to Nineveh. It's not like he's saying something. It's not like he went to like Jonah to Nineveh, but he's prophesying against Nineveh, and he's doing it in like the earshot of Judah. So it, within the first, so there's only three chapters in this book. It's pretty short. I believe three chapters, and there's only 47 verses within the entire three chapters. And I will tell you this. I had planned on doing all 47 verses, but I hit 10 pages of notes after 15 verses, and I thought you guys might hate me, so I decided otherwise. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the first chapter, because the first chapter is really what's opening it up for Judah. This, this first chapter is where Judah can actually get some things. This first chapter and a couple verses in the second. From that point on, it's just God kind of giving the narrative of how he's going to destroy Nineveh. 
And so I'll talk about a few of the things, because a few of the things are funny, I think, and they're just kind of cool little bits of, of history. But as I was going over this, this book of Nahum and trying to figure out, like, what is this, this book what is this book trying to teach us, right? Like, that's, that's what Pastor Jeff really wants us to do as we go through these minor prophets, is, is not so much take apart the entire book, but define this, this big overarching theme. What is the theme of Nahum? And so here is uh, what I came out as the theme for Nahum, is that God's wrath is the means of salvation for God's people. So that's the underlying theme across all of Nahum, is that God's wrath is the means of salvation for God's people. So we're going to walk through this, and we're going to see how this first chapter is going to speak to the here and now, meaning he's talking to what's happening within the people in the timeline, what's actually happening for Judah, what is actually happening in Nineveh. And then we're going to be able to see kind of step back, just as we read in our New Testament reading this morning, is this grander narrative, right? That's what I love about the Bible, okay? is we see all of these small narratives, stories, right? These, these accounts of things that have happened. And we can read this account like something as simple as David and Goliath. And then we can step back and see how David and Goliath is a smaller narrative telling us the grander narrative of Christ beating Satan. And so we're going to see that in, in Nahum. We're going to look at Nahum. We're going to see what's happening in the timeline. And then we're going to be able to pop back out a little bit. And we will see exactly what is kind of that grander narrative to kind of lean into that uh, God's wrath is his means for saving people. So a quick reminder, if you have notebooks or you don't have a notebook, there's little things in the middle there. Uh, when, we're all, when I'm done here yelling at you guys, uh, we will do a quick, uh, just a couple minutes to turn around and share our takeaways. Um, and this is because we genuinely, genuinely want to create the culture where we, we just we take these things that God has taught us, right? So often we can come to church, be preached at, and then just walk away and never do anything with what we heard. We never apply it. We never talk about it again. It's just cataloged in this story or whatever it happens to be. So we want to cultivate this. So that's what we'll be doing. So, all right, are you guys ready? Okay. I hope so. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1, here we go. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So real quick, oracle, um, if you were to define it, you can like Google it. It's basically, um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a vision or a prophetic word from the Lord, but it has a, it's not just a vision or a prophecy. It's something that creates, like it's, it's a heavy burden to carry, right? Like it's not, it's not just news, it's heavy news. It's that news that, you know, you, you got to go tell somebody some hard news, and it's not just news you're sharing. It's, it's, it's this burdensome thing. So it's, when, we use, when we hear this word, it's to give some, some weight to what's coming next. It's not just that, that Nahum had this word he was going to go to Nineveh, hey, Nineveh, no big deal, but this is what the Lord's going to do, but rather this was a burdensome thing for him as he was going to go. So we meet who we are talking about, Nineveh. We meet who our author is, Nahum. And now we're going to see this prophecy from Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous, avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And I just appreciate how before Nahum is ever going to start talking about what God's going to do, he says, let me really quick give you the credentials of who's speaking. He says, let me, before we even get into this prophecy, let me give you the credentials of who is speaking. He says, the, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now, that should sound somewhat familiar because he's kind of paraphrasing Moses from in, in Exodus 20, uh, verses 5 and 6. This is what Moses says. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. He's speaking to other, about other gods. For the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the but, right? So God says, I'm a jealous God. And when when God says he's jealous, now let's be real. When we hear that term jealous, we instantly think about the ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who's super jealous, right? Or the the little brother who's jealous because you got to go do something with mom and dad. We view the idea of jealousy as this bad trait. The thing about a jealous God is that God is jealous, meaning he's not willing to share his worship. He's not willing to share worship. He's like, I'm God. I'm the creator. I made everything. I'm the sovereign. I will not share my throne. I will not share my throne. I don't care who that is who you think you are, will not share my throne. So Nahum says, the Lord is jealous, saying he is the one on the throne. He will not share this throne. He will not share power. He will not share anything. And he's avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance. He's avenging. You guys picking up the theme here? Three times it says it. Three times, what does that say? Well, it comes back to the end, right, where he says in the next verse, chapter or verse 3, he says he will by no means clear the guilty. So he's vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. So he's saying, listen, listen, listen. Your sin will be dealt with. There's no but. There's no if. Sin will be dealt dealt with. He's jealous. He will not allow any of this false worship to happen. He's vengeful and wrathful. He will not share. And he is the only one who can call that. He's the only one who can say this. He's the only one who has the authority and right to make this claim. The name says, this is who is speaking. A vengeful, wrathful God. He's He's talking back to things that they've heard from Moses. And then the verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This also is a paraphrase of Moses. Out of Exodus 34 this time, verses 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers 
on the children's and the children's children's to the third and fourth generation. So a couple of things were said in both accounts here, right? That he is, he is who he is and he will not change. His holiness bounds him. It binds him that he cannot just forget things, that sin must be dealt with, that he is jealous, he will not share worship. This is who he is. And then we've been given these buts, right? But he's slow to anger. He's wrathful, but he's slow before that wrath comes. What that means for you and me is we can keep living life because if God was just purely wrathful and not patient, then the first time we sin, it's over, right? It would be done. And guess what? None of us would be here. I don't think any of us would make it past our first birthday if we're honest, right? We talk about this all the time. Like, you want to talk about sin and sin nature? Watch a toddler, Look, man, they're cute and adorable. But I'm going to tell you right now, when my daughter was one, and I said, don't do that, and she looked at me and did it, I promise you, I didn't teach that to her. And my wife didn't teach it to her. And she had no siblings. So where'd this come from? Something broken inside, right? So God says, look, I know you're broken. I know you're broken. I'm slow to anger. Right? Forgiving and patient. So if you're Judah right now, right? Let's recount where Judah's at. Judah's been just been called out by Micah saying, stop false worshiping. Stop all of these wrong things. Or else wrath is coming. And then we have this story of these, this Assyrian army who they've watched destroy their cousins. Right? They've destroyed their cousins. The entire ten nations of the northern kingdom are gone. Never to be again. Done. Wiped out. And this nation of Assyria, they, they actually, in, in here, we will actually read about how they defeated cities in Egypt. Other cities that were considered impenetrable, the Assyrian army defeated them. So here's this little Judah with this massive army, this, this massive nation that is brutal, has no grace, They've just defeated their, their cousin. They've been called out to right worship. And here there's this story, right? Or not this story, but this oracle that's coming saying, I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to deal with them. But there's this, this underlying tone back into Judah that says, but who's doing it? The holy God is doing it. The holy God is doing it. That nothing's going to change. He is going to be who he is. He's great in power. I love that little term, right? Great in power. Now we'll play on that a little bit as we get further in the reading. But when he says he's great in his power, see, he's great in his power of wrath as well as great in his power and mercy. Right? When it says he's great in power, anything God does, he does greatly with great power, with unending power. So, so you've got the side over here that says wrath is coming, and then you keep having these promises that say but for those are over here. So as Judah's sitting in this, and they hear about this wrath that's coming for Assyria, they know that they've already been warned numerous times about the wrath that's coming for them, and then they hear, but great in power is the God who, who, the God who store, restores, right? The God who saves. He's great in power on both. His grace, though, cannot 
clear the guilty. And that's, that's kind of a key, I think, when it comes to the gospel. We use terms about forgiven, right? That, 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 we're, that, that when we say forgiven, a lot of times we don't attribute payment to that, right? Like when I, when I mess up and I say I'm sorry and someone goes, oh, I forgive you, right? A lot of times it didn't cost me nothing except my pride maybe. So I think we cheapen what it is to be forgiven for our sins because we just kind of attribute, oh, forgiven. So like I said sorry, God was like, ah, it's no big deal. No worries. I get it. You're sinful. Cool. We're tight. But see, God can't do that. He's bound by his holiness. He cannot just clear the guilty. He cannot just clear the guilty. So here's where this this idea of God's wrath is the means of salvation for his people kind of plays out even more than just the physical side. See, God's wrath is going to come out on Nineveh. It's going to destroy Nineveh and subsequently destroy the nation of Assyria. And so as far as Judah's concerned, their salvation from the physical pain of Assyria will come out of God's wrath. It will. God's wrath is going to come. He's going to destroy his enemies. And guess what? Judah doesn't have any more enemies anymore. So there is a physical saving of this this idea of salvation comes from. But then you have this, this other side. That his wrath is going to come, right? Because his wrath has to pay for the sin. His wrath has to come and consume the sin. It has to. I don't know if you guys have ever kind of thought about the fall. And when Adam and Eve, they eat the the fruit, right? And and God comes walking through the garden. He says, where are you? And Adam's like, oh, I was hiding because I was naked and I was embarrassed. And God says, what did you do? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, God. And he's like, you ate of that tree, didn't you? He goes, whoa, 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 it was that woman you gave me. And then he looked at her, and she goes, whoa, the snake did it. The snake did it, right? We already got this, this blame game. And then we see God come back, and then he lays out the punishments for the sins, right? The punishments for the man was he was going to have to toil for everything, right? That everything was going to be hard, that there would be pain and childbearing for the woman, that, that the, the snake would now lose its legs and walk off. And then the punishment is over. And then God says, what are we going to do? Because if we keep them in the garden, they will continue to eat the fruit of the tree of life. We can't have that. So they were banished, not out of punishment. You guys catch that, right? The punishments are done. He's already given the punishments. It's over. Him banishing them out of the garden was grace. Because if they had stayed there, they would never die but they would never, ever get to live with him again. Because God can't coincide with sin. He can't, he can't live with sin. So him removing them from the garden, him basically, right, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know, commanding them to die, essentially, right? Saying, I know you're going to die, here's what's going to happen. That was an act of grace on God's part. Why? Because he's got a plan, right? He's got a plan in Jesus that's going to come down and he's going to handle and he's going to take, he's going to be one with the power that can take the wrath so that we can find grace. Are you guys following me with that? So this, this whole removing of the garden is God's grace on the people. So as, he, as Nahum is giving us the character of God, who he is, he's jealous, he's full of power, he's wrathful, he's avengeful, but he's slow to anger, right? 
but there's this, this other, other way. So now we have this kind of these overarching little character traits of God, and then Nahum in the middle of verse 3 shifts, and he goes like this. He says, His way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are like the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. So now, Nahum's like, okay, before I get to what God's going to do, let me just let you know that the God of salvation, the God who loved you, right? Because Judah's hearing this. So as far as Judah's concerned, right, this is their God that has saved them from Egypt. This is the God that walked them through the desert. This is the God that has saved them numerous times. Read Judges, right? God has constantly sent people in there to save this nation. So they understand, you know, this is who's saying this. And then he shifts to the power that God has. And all I can think about, because I'm a nerd, is the whole Spider-Man quote, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, there we go. I got a couple, couple nerds with me. So here's the power that he shows God, right? That, that his way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So let me just kind of paint this picture a little bit. So a whirlwind, right? When we think of whirlwind, we kind of like assume, like, you ever seen one of those? I mean, we're in California, so we don't, I don't know if you guys are from back west or east. No, Midwest. There you go. Where there's tornadoes and stuff, right? Like, we just have little dirt devils. And you know, you're like, well, where's it going to go, right? Like, like, if you're driving, you're like, oh, man, I'm going to hit that tumbleweed, right? Because just, you just don't know what's going on. So we can naturally think of this whirlwind as being like this chaotic thing that's just wiping stuff out in the middle, right? But what it is is that there's nothing can stop it, right? So God's saying, God, he's saying God's power is unstoppable, right? And he uses this image, image of a storm. And now when he uses this image of the storm, I actually read somewhere where they talked about how the storms that they would know were these, these ice storms where like, people could be in the, like, in the middle of this storm and within like 60 to 90 seconds, their body had already lost all heat. Like The cold was so blistering that life would be sucked out of you within, within minutes. So as he, as he starts to use these images, this is, this is what I read, that there, these storms that they were understanding were these storms that would like literally, if you were caught in it, you were dead. There was just no way out of it that the storm was ever. So he's a whirlwind and a storm. And then I love this, the clouds, of it, the clouds are the dust of his feet. So this is kind of just a picturesque image, right? You guys ever walk down a dirt road? You know, the dust is like, then you get your shoes all messed up. Then you get mad you wear your nice shoes, right? So what they're saying is the clouds, right? When you see a storm and it's as far as the eye can see, that's just the footsteps of God, right? Like he's just walking across the storm cloud. These are just, he's just so big, so massive, that as he just walks through heaven, these storm clouds are just, that's crazy. That's his footstep, covered all of Southern California. He keeps going on, he says, he rebukes the sea, makes it dry, he dries up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. Lebanon was known for its massive trees. Like, the, the, you, you can read about it, in like Solomon talks about it, these massive trees of Lebanon. And he says, God just makes those wil, wil, wilter, right? Wither. They just wither away. These massive trees. We, my family and I got to go see the redwoods. I could just imagine, like, this, this tree you can't see the top of, and then all of a sudden it just withers. That's 
cool. Yeah, I like that. And he goes on, he says, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the, all, the world and all that is before this. So if you could just kind of picture what Nahum is trying to describe when it comes to the power of God, he says, the oceans that we can't even begin to think to control, he dries them up. The rivers we don't create, but wholly rely on, he dries them up. The greatest forest of trees we could ever climb, God withers. Mountains that we stand at the base of and can't see the top quake before God. Hills that we climb to see past, He melts. And the earth heaves. You've ever had that like, right? Like you just can't, when somebody throws up and you got that like, was that the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What? You know how, no, like when you know yeah, I don't know. Somebody else is doing it, and so you do it. They're like, stop. I'm going to do it, right? This, like, this uncontrollable thing is happening. It says when God comes to the earth, the earth can do nothing but give whatever it needs. Whatever you need, Lord. The earth cannot say anything. The thing we're standing on right now, right? The thing we feel the most secure in. Right? If we want to think about things we feel secure about, it's the floor. Right? Nobody walks, we don't take a step like, I don't know about this concrete. Right? That's just who we are. The floor is the most secure thing we can think of. That's why when we wake up, we feel like we're falling out of bed. Right? Falling freaks us out. Like, we like to be rooted. And Nahum says, the thing that is the most rooting for us heaves when God comes. Heaves, uncontrollable. So we've seen that God is perfectly righteous in His justice. We see that God is unyielding in His holiness. And we've seen that God is unending in His power. Like pretty much everything we can think of when it comes to creation around us, Nahum has said God's in, all of it bows to God. Without even thinking. And so I love I love how Nahum, you'll notice, Nahum almost has this conversation within himself, right? So he's just explained the character of God. He's just given this, these, these picturesque power of God, right? Now we have to reconcile this, that we're sinners. We deserve wrath. So his next thought, after giving us who God is, what God stands for, all of his power, verse 6 says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces. Because that is, should naturally be our conversation, right? When we're confronted with the holiness and power of God, we should stop and say, who can stand? Every time anybody in the Bible comes in contact with God in any level, even an angel, do you know what they do? They hit the floor and freak out. Every time. That's actually how you can tell the difference between a pre-incarnate Christ and an angel is when the, the, the angelic being shows up and the, the man or the, the whoever, the human, hits the floor and goes, oh, why? I know it. One of them will say, stand up. Stand up. I'm not worthy to be worshipped. And the other one will allow the worship. Guess who's who? Yeah, Jesus lets the worship. There you go. So when you're reading your Old Testament and, and you read about this angelical being that shows up, you know, and then you see somebody worship, 
and they allow it to be worshipped. That's called a Christophany. That's a fancy word for Christ before he was born. I don't know why I told you that. But this is what he says. He says, who can stand here? When we understand who God is, his power, his might, his righteousness, who can stand? He says, the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Isaiah actually says very much the same thing in chapter 33. He says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell in the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell in everlasting burnings? This should be where every one of us finds ourselves when we think of God. Before we ever get, before we ever get to the grace side of things, we have to land here first. Because if we don't land here first, then grace becomes cheap. Grace becomes no big deal. I mean, can you just picture these, these words that, that he's using? Rocks are destroyed. These trees come and fall into nothing. They wither away. That We need to understand and recognize our position. Because if we do not recognize our position, we will abuse the grace. We will abuse the grace. This is what Judah's doing. This is what Judah has been doing. This is what Israel did. They said, oh, God's slow to anger. It's cool. It's cool. But we can't, we can't land there. We have to first come to the point of who can stand. Who can stand. So we see Nahum say that, right? He's just given us this power of God place this, this, this picture that says we don't deserve to even be close to standing near him, right? Who can stand here? And then we have our hope. We have our but. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Okay. Notice the progression. We didn't start here. Right? We didn't start here. We didn't start that, that, that God's a stronghold in the day of trouble and, and that he knows those who take refuge in him. No, we started over here that says God is holy and all-powerful and will not cope with sin, will not agree with sin, is wrathful, avenging. We started here. Because when we can understand here, then we can understand the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. So kind of picture what's, what's happening here. We're going to get a little zoom out just a smidgen here. So God has just gone around talking about his, his wrathful, he's vengeful, all of this power. And then he says, but I'm also your means of, of, of safety. So where is the only place anyone can find safety from God's wrath? In God. That's it. There's no place to run. There's no place to run. And we see that. Verse 8 to 9 says, But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. It says, where are you going to go? 
I just, we just got done reading about how mountains quake, how, how, mil, how hills will melt, how the earth will heave up anything God asks for him. He says, what do you think is going to happen? You think you can run? You're not going to hide. Because all the Lord has to do is command the earth to huck you up. Like, doesn't matter how deep you even, you can't even hide in the center of the earth, right? You're not going anywhere. There's no getting away from this wrath. But what we need to catch on this is he, he makes, twice he says, he says he will make a complete end of the adversary. So you can read throughout the Old Testament and you'll see that, that um, when Israel comes out of Egypt and they walk for 40 years through the wilderness, God then commands them to take over the promised land and says, hey, I need you to destroy all these evil nations that are before you because if you don't, they will be barbs in your eyes. And um, Israel, because they're really good at listening, didn't. And so these nations like the Philistines and the Amorites and the Moabites and all these other ites constantly were oppressing Israel, oppressing Judah constantly. And then we would read all through the judges. Um, those are always God using somebody to release a little bit of pressure. But never did God say he was going to make a complete end of them. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Amorites, all of those guys would get beat up. They would go home, nurse their wounds, get stronger, and then they would go attack again. It would just be the cycle. But here... When it comes to the Assyrians, when it comes to who he's talking to here, to Nineveh, he's telling Nineveh a complete end is coming. Complete end. That should pause everybody, at least the, the hearers of the day, right? Because God's never talked about a complete end. But this time, he says there will be a complete end, right? He will completely end the adversaries. He will pursue the enemies into darkness. And then it says, what do you plot against the Lord? What makes you think you're going to win? How do you think you're going to get away with this? He's going to make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. And so now we, we see we can zoom out a bit. Right? Because we are talking about Assyria here. We're talking about Assyria, and Assyria is going to be, find a complete end. They're going to be completely destroyed, never to live on the earth again. Assyria is not going to attack anybody. Judah will be freed from Assyria's attacks. They will get attacked by Babylon later, but Assyria will find a complete end. But God's talking about a bigger picture here. He's zooming out. He's saying that there is a grander thing happening. If I could steal a little thunder for next Sunday, don't tell Pastor Jeff I did this. The book of Zephaniah, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, um, this is what Zephaniah says. He says, And he will stretch his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all, her, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window, devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare, and the exudulent, ex, uh, I'm not going to do it. City that lived securely, that said in her heart, here it is, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A liar, a liar for wild beasts, everyone who passes by her. 
kisses and shakes his fists. So Zephaniah is talking about Assyria as well. So it hasn't happened yet when Zephaniah comes. Don't tell Pastor Jeff I did this. So, but what he said is he's giving us an insight, right? Because there's this rhetorical conversation happening within Nahum, right? As if he was speaking to Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh, spoke to Nineveh. Nineveh responded. Here we see Nahum having a conversation within himself, right? It's almost like Nahum says, this is who God is. And they're like, yeah, so? And he's like, well, this is God's power. Yeah, so, right? Like, that's kind of the, the progression of this conversation. And he's thinking, well, God's wrathful. This is what he's going to do. And they go, yeah, so. Why is it that they can go, yeah, so? Zephaniah gives us that key. At this point in time, Nineveh assumes nobody can touch them. They're not afraid of anything. doesn't matter how many prophets would come and make threats, they would ignore all of them. Because they say what? I am, and there is no one else. That term, I am, does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's what God calls himself, right? When, when he's in the burning bush, he's talking to Moses, and Moses says, who am I supposed to say sent me? I am sent me, right? So we see Nineveh has gone to a place where they are assuming They are as powerful as God. They think they can withstand whatever God's got for them. They're like, bring it on, God. Verse 10 continues to kind of pour into Nineveh a little bit. It says, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed, fully dry. Now, there's a couple different ways that people understand that whole thorns entangled. Some, Some people believe that that Nineveh had a lot of faith in their walls, that nobody was going to breach their walls, and, and this is God saying your walls might as well just be bushes, as far as I'm concerned. Some people believe that, that this idea of thorn bushes, that the evil and the self-righteousness within the city was so entangled that every, every man was for themselves, and it was just this dangerous place to be in anywhere. Really, I, you could go for either one. I think it's probably that they're, they're nasty with each other, because then the next line, right, talks about them that they are like drunkards as they drink. And here's a fun little geeky um, historical note. Um, It is recorded that when uh, Assyria gets beat up or destroyed by Babylon, they are literally drunk in the city. So there you go. That's cool, right? So Nineveh was literally drunk as Babylon comes in and destroys them. And then verse 11 kind of opens up the grand narrative, and that's where I want to like, come here hard and then walk away from. So verse 11 says, From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are, full, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now, and now I will break his yoke from you and will burst your bonds apart. So we've got this, we understand who the the evil of of Nineveh is. And then he says, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now the word that they're pulling worthless counselor from actually is used in other places as a name for Satan. It means to, it's basically naming who Satan is. So now we're getting to see that grander than the uh, physical battle between Judah and between 
uh, Assyria is this greater battle between Satan and God. That all of the evil that is happening, all of the pride, all of the fact that Nineveh thinks that they can take on God is because they've had a worthless counselor telling them such. That Satan has been pushing them and leaning them into. Why? Because he knows what was promised to Eve. That one would come from her that would then crush his head. So he wants with everything in him to stop that. Satan is just as delusional as everybody that follows him thinking he's going to accomplish that. But this is why all of these nations, evil nations, are constantly attacking God's people. It's because there's a grander war at hand here. This is not just a, 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 an Assyria-Judah issue. This is, a, this is a God and Satan issue. Here's our big narrative. And we can pull this bigger narrative out because then it says, Thus says the Lord, though they are full of strength, right, and many, they will be cut down and will pass away. He says, though I have afflicted you. So now he's speaking to Judah, right? One of the few times he's actually speaking to Judah. He goes, though I've allowed all of these nations to afflict you, I won't anymore. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and burst your bonds apart. What is this yoke? This yoke is sin, right? God's saying, I'm going to bust this, sin of, of this, this yoke of sin that is on you. I'm going to free you from this. How? His wrath. His wrath, right? We just keep seeing that. His wrath is the means of salvation. Verse 14 says, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetrated. Sorry, that's not the right one. I can't read today. I'm so sorry. For the house of your gods will be cut off the carved images, and the metal images. I will make your grave, for you are vile. So now he goes back over here to Satan. Right? Now he's calling out Satan, and what's going to happen? No more shall you be able to go. Right? I'm going to crush you. I'm going to crush you, right? And then he's talking about Nineveh. I'm going to crush you within your, your gods, and I will cut these carved images and these metal images, and I will make a grave for you, for you are vile. He's saying, I'm going to destroy you with the very thing you're using to worship. I'm going to take everything that is yours and crush you with it. Satan thinks he wins with Jesus on the cross, but it actually ends up being his undoing, right? We see this other grander picture. So verse 15, here's where uh, fun stuff happens, and then we will close. Verse 15, we go back to Judah. He says, Behold, upon the mountain, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, keep your feet, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So God's speaking to Judah. I know it's rough. I know, I know everything that is happening is overwhelming. I know this is scary. I know you're tired of it. He goes, but good news is coming, right? One who is publishing peace. And he says, keep your feasts. Now, there's a, there was a lot of feasts within the Old Testament that they were called to keep. And so when I kind of tease this out a little bit, trying to figure out what feast it was, you guys remember uh, Pastor Jeff gave us the statistics that each kingdom had 20 kings, and uh, all of Israel kings were evil, and Judah had roughly eight kings that were good. And among those eight, four of them were kind of good, 
There's only like four decent goods. Well, this actual time for Judah, they're actually under the last good king of Josiah. Um, and here's what happens, and you guys can read about this in 2 Kings chapters uh, 21, 22, and 23, I believe. Um, so first we meet uh, Josiah, and just so you know, Josiah, dude, is gangster. I'm not even kidding. Dude is eight years old when he becomes king, right? Eight years old. We actually find out that it's actually named towards the end, right at the end of his reign um, in 2 Kings. Uh, you actually see God say, even though Josiah fixed all of this stuff because of his grandpa, Manasseh, because of all of the evil he did, that's it, Judah's still getting it. So he's coming from a line of very evil people, and at eight, he becomes king. And he cleans house. Like, he cleans house so hardcore that he goes to these false temples, murders the priest, then burns their bones on their altars, then crushes their altars. Just in case. This Josiah. Guys, go read about Josiah. He's gangster. Legit gangster. But this is what happens in 2 Kings verse 23, towards the end. It says, And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant, For no such a Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But the 18th year of Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord of Jerusalem. You guys know what the Passover was? I'm going to tell you anyways. So the Passover is what happened the last plague in Egypt. God says, I need you to to uh, kill this perfect lamb, put the blood on the doorpost. And so long as you do that, the... um, uh, angel of death will pass over you, and then that was the minute where all of Egypt cries, and they give God or they give God's people all this stuff. God's people leave, and then God says, "Once a year, redo this Passover feast." Why? So you don't forget, which obviously they did, right? But they were commanded to continue to do this year in and year out, year in and year out. And guess who was there? Everybody, kids, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Why? So we don't forget. See a common theme here? It says, do this over and over again. But we read, Josiah is, I think there's three kings after him. Three? Maybe four. So we are 18 generations of kings in. Not to count uh, David and Solomon. So we have all of these generations and none of them, none of them did this Passover. So at this moment in time for Judah, this feast just started going again. This feast was pointing us to Jesus. Do you know what Jesus was doing, the the Lord's table, when we come to the Lord's table for communion? Do you know what was happening when he came to that table? Passover. So this is how we could see this first chapter of, of Nahum is, is God telling a story in, in the narrative, right, of what's actually happening, but it's telling a grander story of how God's wrath will be poured out on sin. It will destroy all those who are not found in him. Then the sin that was to be ours will be bore, and the wrath will be poured out on that, on who? Jesus Christ. And so we will find salvation through God's wrath. God's wrath will put a complete end to evil and it will be the, be the means by which we can come back and live with God. So when we speak about God's wrath, this isn't a bad thing. 
God's wrath is genuinely, genuinely a good thing. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, For God is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God's saying, I'm, re- I'm going to restore this. Same promise he made to Eve. I will restore this. I will fix this. Same promise he makes to David. Same promise he makes to Abraham. Same promise he makes to us. Right? We live in the already, not yet. That's, this is where we live in. Because God has already made the way, but we haven't found it yet. We're not at, that, we're not at the end yet. It's the already, not yet. So the rest of the book, you guys should read it when you go home. But you'll see how Babylon will come in. He'll come in. They will, flood the bo- they will actually flood the city with the very waters that Nineveh thought would save them. It says that uh, Babylon's army will be so great that the reflections from their armor will be like lightning strikes in the eyes, that the armies of Babylon will stumble, trip over all of the dead bodies of Assyria, that Nineveh will see its great army run and hide, that no stronghold will save them, that their riches will be plundered, that that there will be nothing left, just like as Zephaniah said, their beautiful city will be so destroyed it will only inhabit animals. It won't even inhabit man anymore. All of their people will be scattered and sent away. It says their infants will be crushed and completely left desolate. So that's what happens in the next two chapters. You guys should read that. Uh, it's really, really good. But what is happening here is that God's wrath is guaranteed. God's wrath is guaranteed, and it will come, and it will make a complete end of sin and its effect. And there's no amount of riches that can buy our way out of his wrath. There's no hiding from God's wrath. There is nowhere anyone can go to keep from God's wrath when it comes except one place, and that place is where God's wrath has already been, and that's in Jesus. The only safe place from God's wrath is where already been and so that's my that's my plea this morning like maybe you've lived this christian life for a really long time maybe you're a seasoned vet in this christian life my question would be do you forsake the feast is is church just what you do do we just get caught up in the routines? Do we just show up where we go because we know this is what we're supposed to do? Or do we genuinely come to the feast? Do we come and do we worship? And then if this is your, if you're, you're new to the whole idea of Christianity, hear the, hear the, hear the threat that is what the enemy wants. The, the enemy wants to take away your hope. The enemy wants you to feel like you don't deserve to be here. And let me tell you something. We, we don't. We don't deserve to be here. But you can't forget that. So as the enemy will want to, 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 to press in on you, pull you away, my call would be for you to just push back. And all my families, my parents, my kids, a hundred years. A hundred years Nineveh went from burning ashes and not eating for three days at seven words of God's wrath coming, to now staring at God in the face and saying, bring it on. Josiah will be the last king. His son 
actually only rules for three months. And do you know what's said about him? In three months, in three months, it says he did all that was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as families, where's our legacy? Are we sharing the legacy that is God's wrath and therefore His grace? And if this is your first time hearing the gospel, I, I, man, I hope you don't hear just God's wrath, but that you hear God save. God's wrath is, is, is guaranteed, but He also saves. So I pray that this morning you will have heard all of the buts, all of the He does. He is this, but also. And that if you've got any questions, would you find me, Pastor Maudie, one of the elders when we come up for communion, whatever it is, we'd love to talk and, and just discuss what, what it looks like. Cool? Sweet. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pray, and then I'll give you guys a couple minutes for your takeaway, and then we'll do uh, communion. Father, I just thank you for uh, your wrath, Lord, in, in that. I think there's even peace in knowing that your wrath is always your wrath is always your wrath. You always hate sin. You don't change. We don't have to assume where you might land. And Father, your wrath, you just you you save us in your wrath. You come before, you do, you you are our stronghold, Lord. It says that you come and you cover us, that you know those who are found in you. And so Lord, I pray that for everyone in this room. Would we find the peace that is a stronghold in you? That our hearts would be humbled in your glory and power. That our hearts would be grateful for your, your salvation and your saving. And that we would do just as the Proverbs say over and over again. That knowledge begins with the fear of God that we would fear you, that we would not find ourselves arrogant like the Assyrians. Your spirit does the work. We love you, Lord. We thank you, and we pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.